Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. We have a really great show lined up for you today, and I hope you will stick around for the entire hour and enjoy it with us. Last weekend, I did something very unusual. I went and saw a film in the theater. And which one did I see? I saw Sully. And I went without Lori. I had a feeling she would not like this sort of movie. She's not a great flyer. Anyway, as you know, uh, this film starring Tom Hanks recounts the uh, amazing landing on water of a commercial uh, airliner in New York on the Hudson River in which no passengers lost their lives. And the plane, of course, was brought down by birds, a bird strike. And I'll just tell you, the film was uh, quite good, not too complicated. However, I'm sure it's a challenge for the filmmakers to create a storyline that's engaging when everyone knows many of the details and the outcome from the news. But nonetheless, I found it rather engrossing and well done. Now, here on Animals Today, we do have a little experience with this topic, and it goes way back to 2009. Dr. Richard Dolbeer uh, was at that time a retired biologist from the U.S. Department of Agriculture who specialized in conflicts between humans and animals and had a particular expertise in bird strikes. And we're going to play that interview for you right now. As we all now know, a U.S. Airways Airbus A320 crash landed in New York's Hudson River a few weeks back on January 16th. Flight 1549 was heroically saved by Captain Chesley Sullenberger and his crew after a gaggle of geese were sucked into the engines and the plane lost power. Captain Sullenberger avoided crashing into the city itself, choosing the Hudson as a landing spot and in a quick five minutes hair-raising flight, and he ultimately saved everybody, everybody aboard on the plane. On January 24th, Mayor Bloomberg honored Captain Solberger and his crew, and rightly so, for averting a disaster with his skillful landing and his handling of the evacuation of the passengers. You know, as the plane was sinking, the captain walked the full length of the hull twice to make sure no passengers were on board. They evacuated the plane in a few minutes, and boy, if, you, if you've ever tried to get off a plane that had calmly landed, you know what kind of a feat that is. Captain Sullenberger, by all indications, claimed he was just doing his job and, as most true heroes are, was completely modest about the situation. But wow, talk about grace under pressure. Talk about performing at the limits of human achievement. You know, it reminds me of two events that are sort of buried into my collective memories. First, you remember the amazing Franco Harris immaculate reception of the 1972 Super Bowl? I mean, maybe the greatest sports play ever. And then second, the revetting landing of the Apollo 11 lunar landed by Armstrong in 1969. I mean, wow. Listen, the fact is there are a lot of dangers posed to human beings and animals when it comes to vehicles, cars, trains. And this incident with the plane is a prime example. According to CarAccidents.com, there are more than 1.5 million crashes involving deer each year, involving deer, which cause over 1 million, 1 billion, excuse me, 1 billion in damages. 150 of the deer collisions are fatal, and there are more than 10,000 people injured. Surely this crash in New York City will push along the public discussion as well as the discussions of policymakers on how to make the skies and the roads safer without decimating the animals. 
I mean, there are tips like drive slower at night with high beams on. There are signs posted in areas with multiple animal accidents. There's large concrete sound and animal barriers around the freeways. But as we've just seen, more needs to be done. We need to figure out ways to get from point A to point B without hitting a deer, without hitting a moose, or a gaggle of geese, or endangering 150 passengers on a plane. I mean, think about it. A small flock of birds just took down an Airbus in midday. An Airbus. The dangers posed to humans and animals are huge. And thanks for the courage and skill of Captain Solenberger and his crew. I mean, the plane could have crashed in the middle of New York, killing hundreds of people because some geese got in its way. We will speak to Dr. Richard Dolbeer, a biologist who spent 20 years studying this problem of bird strikes at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. You're listening to Animals Today, live from Palm Springs. Here again is Dr. Lori Kirshner. We're lucky to have with us today Dr. Richard Dolbeer, recently retired as the National Coordinator for the United States Department of Agricultural Airport Wildlife Hazards Program. Richard was a scientist with USDA Wildlife Services for 36 years, where he had led a series of research projects to resolve conflicts between humans and wildlife. Dr. Dolbeer was honored in 2000 by the 65,000-member Airline Pilots Association for scientific integrity and worldwide leadership in the reduction of wildlife hazards to aviation. Welcome, Dr. Dolbeer. Thank you for being with us here today. Yes, so it's my pleasure, Dr. Kirshner. So we hear last Tuesday a United Airlines jet returned safely to the Denver airport after a bird struck it and was sucked into one of its engines shortly after takeoff. And then, of course, this is just a few weeks after the near disaster in New York on the Hudson River. Dr. Dobier, obviously birds are a danger to aircraft, but how big a problem are bird strikes? And I guess more to the point and importantly, how common is it to have a bird strike that would disable one engine or both engines on an aircraft? Well, it's, it, it is a serious problem, and it's, it's a growing problem. Uh, just to give you an example, in the last 20 years, uh, since 1988, uh, we know of 205 aircraft, that's 83 civil aircraft and 122 military aircraft, that have been destroyed by bird strikes. Uh, and this includes 78 in the, in the United States. So... Um, And we've had at least 225 people killed, and we've had uh, a number of very uh, close uh, close calls. I think, you know, in the aftermath of the uh, near disaster at uh, in New York City uh, two and a half weeks ago, we've seen a lot of news about bird strikes, uh, like what happened in in Denver. But these these things have been going on all along. It's just, for the most part, been ignored by the media until after this uh, event in in New York City. Right. It really is a wake-up call. Can you tell us the most deadly crash that occurred due to bird strikes? Well, the most deadly crash was in 1960 in uh, Boston when a uh, Lockheed Electra um, Eastern Airlines at that time took off and ingested starlings, which is a, a a small blackbird uh, into both engines and crashed in the uh, Boston Harbor, killing uh, 62 people. Uh, in 1995, at Elmendorf Air, Air Force Base in Alaska, we had a, uh, uh, a Boeing 707, which is a large, wide-body jet um, used in, in surveillance by the Air Force, 
take off and ingested uh, Canada geese into two engines of its four engines and crashed, killing all uh, 24 airmen. And we've had other, other crashes that have killed 38 people and 40-something people. So uh, it is something serious. I just will mention uh, this past year, in March of 2008, uh, we had a business jet taking off from Oklahoma City at Will Rogers uh, Airport, Wiley Post Airport, General Aviation Airport there, and it flew through a flock of white pelicans and uh, just off the airport and crashed, uh, killing all five uh, people aboard. Uh, these accidents are, are happening, and, uh, and, and we've had a number of, uh, of, of close calls. One, one other thing I just might mention, you ask about uh, disabling of engines. We've had over uh, 3,300 events with civil aircraft in the U.S. that we know of with one engine that has been damaged uh, because of bird strikes since 1990, 3,300. And we've had 200 cases where we've had two engines damaged. It's something we need to be concerned about, particularly because we see the, uh, so many of these populations of large bird species in the U.S., that are increasing because of uh, very successful environmental programs we've had. Is it safer to fly in a plane with three or four engines? Well, yes, it would be safer, but that's just not going to happen because the industry is going uh, almost exclusively to two-engine aircraft uh, because of fuel efficiency. And uh, the only uh, you know four-engine aircrafts out there today are, are the wide-bodied uh, Boeing 747 right. and the new uh, monster Airbus 380, you know, which can carry over 500 passengers, and uh, the Airbus 340 are the only ones that uh, have four engines that are in regular use. So almost every flight you're going to be on is going to be on a uh, two-engine aircraft. Has the threat from bird strikes increased over the years? Definitely. And, and uh, just as one example... We, in the civil aviation in the U.S., uh, a database that we maintain for the FAA, there were 1,700 strikes reported in 1990, and, and in 2008, we had about fourfold increase up to 8,000. And the reason the strikes are increasing are two factors. We've seen a remarkable rebound in populations of many species who were uh, whose populations were suppressed during the 1950s and 60s because of widespread use of DDT and a lack of an environmental ethic in the U.S., a lot of illegal killing. And uh, since the late 1960s, when a remarkable series of, of environmental legislation were passed, including the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency and the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act, and so on, we've seen uh, populations rebound uh, tremendously, and, and this is a wonderful thing. Uh, you know, we should all be very proud as, as Americans right. that uh, this has happened. But it, because of that, uh, and, and at the same time, we've seen air traffic increase, and more importantly, you mentioned two engines versus three and four. Besides going to two-engine aircraft, these jet engines we have today are much quieter than the older uh, engines, and there's very little noise at all that comes out the front of the aircraft. So 
birds aren't aware of a rapidly approaching aircraft, and so they have very little, if any, time to react and get out of the way. Right. So between the successful wildlife conservation programs and more birds and quieter planes, we are on an increase. Exactly. Yeah. I'm Dr. Roy Kirshner. This is Animals Today. We're talking to Dr. Richard Dolbeer about the coexistence of of birds and, and aircraft. And stay with us more with this fascinating interview from the Animals Today archives after the break. Welcome back to Animals Today. We're listening to Lori's interview with Dr. Richard Dole Beer about bird strikes and ways we can keep airports and planes safer and keep the birds out of harm's way. So let's continue. Uh, Dr. Dole Beer, other than geese, I know that you mentioned a few other birds that are, are dangerous for the aircraft. I'm sure there are many birds that die in the pathway of a plane, but it must be the larger birds that can actually harm the engine. Does a bird have to weigh a certain amount at which point under he does not damage an engine? Well, that, that's a, a, really a difficult question to answer. The, in, in general, you're, you're correct. The larger the bird, the greater the hazard because... You know, mass and, and energy are, are related. But um, small birds, particularly flocks of small birds, are equally as hazardous. I mentioned the worst accident and uh, loss of lives the year, at Boston Harbor in 1960 was caused by European starlings. These birds only weigh about 80 grams or 3 ounces, uh, whereas a Canada goose weighs 8 to 10 pounds. But they're in, in large flocks. Uh, just last uh, November, just three months ago, in, at uh, Campino Airport in Rome, Italy, a Boeing 737 with 150 passengers on board, uh, they flew through a flock of starlings, um, the same species that was at Boston, on uh, approach to the airport to land. Both engines were disabled. And in this case, because they were on final approach, the pilot was able to literally crash the airplane into the runway, collapsing the landing gear, but he was able to land safely with the plane not catching on fire. And all passengers were able to evacuate out the emergency exit uh, with a few minor injuries. That's incredible. This was in November of 2008, just three months ago, and that was by a bird that only weighs 80 uh, grams. The, now, the startling I, you're talking about. Yeah, the startling. Yeah, yeah. Now, I might even mention another uh, example. Last uh, spring, last May, in Belgium, a, a Boeing 747, the big four-engine, wide-bodied jet, car, this was a cargo plane taking off uh, from Belgium to the uh, Middle East on a flight, and it ingested a single 190-gram uh, which is a little less than half a pound uh, European kestrel, which is a small falcon. And uh, it disabled the engine. Uh, the pilot made a decision to abort the takeoff. He hadn't lifted off the ground yet. He wasn't able to stop the aircraft at the end of the runway. It ran off the runway, and, uh, and it stopped very close to some houses, broken two, and the aircraft was... Uh, damage beyond repair by a single 190-gram bird. And this was in May of 2008. And so now, you know, in, in retrospect, that pilot probably should not have aborted takeoff. He could have 
probably gotten airborne and come around and landed on three engines, but I'm not going to judge a pilot's decision in that kind of a situation. The bottom line is a 190-gram bird uh, destroyed an aircraft that weighs uh, about uh, over 500,000 pounds. Yeah, that's just incredible. Now, most importantly, Doctor, what can be done to prevent these strikes, or what is being done? To okay, well, I think one of the most exciting areas, you know, we want, we want birds and, and aircraft to coexist, and, and that's been my whole career working to, to try to get wildlife and, and people to be able to coexist. And uh, one of the areas where we're doing active research is, and can we make the aircraft more visible to the birds? Uh, I mentioned the quiet engines are definitely a hindrance, and we're not, we don't want to make the, the engines loud again, but we're uh, experimenting, we being the U.S. Department of Agriculture and in, in, in collaboration with private industry on uh, uh, pulsating landing lights uh, that uh, pulse at a, at a rate and a variable rate in a way that can um, we think maybe will help birds to see that there's an aircraft approaching and, uh, and and take evasive action more early. Also, most birds can see in the ultraviolet range of light beyond what we see, and uh, so the, uh, there's an idea that using ultraviolet reflecting paint on the leaning edge of aircraft may help. So these are two areas that are, uh, you know, I think are very promising uh, research. Also, the use of bird detecting radar that will help uh, the pilot and the air traffic control to see the birds and perhaps be able to uh, route uh, at least some uh, air traffic in, in ways to avoid uh, uh, flocks of birds that are that are migrating, and uh, and this is going to be very you know it's a very complex uh, issue because air traffic control right now is is very difficult just keeping track of other aircraft in the air, right. not to mention birds. But it is an, an idea being worked on. Uh, in your opinion, are enough resources being applied to solve the problem? Uh, definitely not. Uh, it's been a problem that's really been ignored by the aviation industry and. Uh, until now, I think what happened in uh, the dramatic events of two weeks ago are, are, is a wake-up call. And uh, because there's a lot of other things that need to be done, we need to be doing a lot more in managing uh, habitat on airports to make it unattractive to birds, uh, planting types of grass that birds don't like to uh, feed in, or and that rodents don't uh, grow uh, thrive in, so there are less birds of prey. There are just all kinds of things that need to be done, and there's definitely a need for more. Uh, research and, and effort uh, in this area. Yeah, Dr. Dolbier, we're running close to the end here, but I actually wanted to ask you one other thing. You know, I read somewhere that in the 70s, uh, the military also had a problem with the, the starlings or the blackbirds, and they would crop dust them, the crop dust the aircraft and the helicopters with tergitol, which is apparently strong detergent, and, and which it horribly, I guess, washes the oil from the bird's body when it gets on it. So, that and the oil keeps them warm and insulates them, so they the birds would essentially freeze to death. Is that is that a fact? That's correct. Uh, back in the 1970s and 80s, there was a uh, a, a product that was developed and, and registered by the EPA uh, for controlling uh, populations of blackbirds and starlings, and uh, tergitol was its its name, and it's a surfactant, and it would be applied either by a helicopter or by uh, hoses from a fire truck onto nighttime congregations of roosting blackbirds and starlings. And it would uh, 
allow uh, <clears throat> during a rainfall, it would be applied on nights of rainfall, and uh, it would allow water to penetrate the, uh, the feathers and cause the birds to die of hypothermia. And uh, there were uh, millions of blackbirds and starlings uh, killed at, at roost uh, during the uh, 70s and 80s with, that use, with the use of uh, turgitol, uh, mainly in the southern <coughs> United States, uh, areas like Tennessee and Kentucky, to uh, control blackbird roosts that were near uh, residential areas, and there was a concern of histoplasmosis and other uh, diseases. And uh, anyway, that was done. It was really not done uh, much for uh, prevention of bird strikes. It was more from a public health uh, point of view. It's no longer registered and no longer being used. Yeah, a sickening way to to go about things, huh? Well, it certainly, uh, you know, it was, yeah, I mean, I, I don't... I'm not going to comment whether it was uh, justified or not at the time. At the time, it was felt that uh, this was a way to try to manage manage these populations. And uh, I think what showed up after uh, you know doing it for a number of years is that it really was not solving the problem. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Dolbeer, thank you so much for being with us here today. It was very educational. Well, thank you, Dr. Kirshner. I'll be glad to uh, visit with you again sometime. I hope so. Thank you, sir. animals today. So the race to the presidential election is as intense as anyone can remember. But as usual, issues involving animals are not really part of the debate. However, I just learned of an issue concerning the welfare of horses that really will be affected by the election, no matter its outcome. And to explain what I'm talking about, I want to welcome Susan Wagner. She's president and founder of Equine Advocates. Susan is spearheading a campaign to collect signatures so that President Obama can be presented with a petition to protect horses from slaughter. And your action is needed now. Susan founded Equine Advocates more than 20 years ago, and it is dedicated to promoting the humane and responsible treatment of horses. And yes, horses are still being slaughtered. Good to have you on the show again, Susan. Thank you for having me. Susan, how and why did you come up with this idea to start a petition to end horse slaughter at this time? Well, I'm not going to go into all the details because the history of this issue has been long and rocky. But what I can say for sure is that when I rescued my first horse back in 1994, that was enough inspiration for me to found this organization two years later. And one of my mentors was a woman named Kathleen Doyle, who spearheaded the Save the Horses campaign in California. It was a state initiative, and if passed, California would become the first state in the nation to ban horse slaughter through a state initiative, which it did. I had the honor of being there on November 3rd, 1998, as the returns came in. It was one of the greatest nights of my life. And um, in California, which is the biggest agribusiness state in the nation, it is the most populated state as far as people and horses, passed this initiative by 60% of the vote. And so we all thought, this is the springboard for a federal bill. 
And that was 1998, and we haven't really come close. The closest we've ever come was in 2006 when the American Horse Slaughter Prevention Act passed in the House but was blocked in the Senate. So we never got close again uh, since with a federal bill. So in in that amount of time, however, um, there hasn't been an operating slaughterhouse in the United States since 2007, and you know which is great, but we are still shipping more than 150,000 horses live across our borders into Mexico and Canada for the purpose of slaughter. And so uh, one of the great things that happened um, is that in 2010, we started to get information in the way of science and documentation that we didn't have about horses prior to that. And as you know, President Obama and Vice President Biden uh, became, you know, got into office in 2008. And so they had the benefit of getting this information, which other presidents had not. And also we as activists, you know, only had to deal with the cruelty issue, which we know the government doesn't really care about cruelty. Um, because where our society is inundated with it. And then we had the arguments, well, horses are part of our culture, and they settled the West, and all those usual things that never really got us very far. But then in 2010, uh, there was a landmark study published in Elsevier that proved that anyone eating the meat of horses who have been treated with the drug phenylbutazone which is called Butte for short. It's like a horse aspirin. It's the most common drug given to horses, and 98% of them test positive for it. It's a great drug for horses, but if you're a person eating the meat of a horse who's been given that, you increase your risk for getting all kinds of cancers and blood diseases. Okay, so that was monumental. That was the first time the European Union actually blinked um, when they learned that the meat of horses from this country mostly tested positive for that drug. Okay, that was in 2010. In 2013, you had the European horse meat scandal, which gripped that continent for more than a year and is actually still going on, where products that were labeled 100% beef were actually 100% horse meat. And that was food fraud rampant all across the continent, including in England, where they don't eat horses. It goes against their culture just as it goes against ours. And they found it in school lunches, in frozen dinners, and it, it, it was horrible. Mm. Okay, that was 2013. In 2015, there was another study published in Elsevier about, from Chapman University of California, which proved that there was horse meat in some chopped meat products in the American food supply. So <laughs> this president and vice president have been witness to all of this. And so in 2014, um, Vice President Joe Biden attached language to a spending bill to continue to defund horse meat inspectors in the United States. So thanks to him, we haven't had uh, horse slaughterhouses operating here um, since 2007, and he continued that trend in 2014. And, um, but we still have these horses going over the border. Now, while all that was going on, there was legislation introduced. There's a bill called the SAFE Act, which doesn't really do the trick. It doesn't really accomplish what people think 
that it does. And so as an organization, we, we can't support it unless it's amended. But to tell you the truth, um, with this Congress, I mean, they don't want to pass anything. So the, the, to think that they would even consider passing a, a horse protection law is kind of out of the question, even if it was the greatest bill in the world. Yeah. And so we are, we're left with nothing but... You know, because I'm just so involved with this issue, a couple of things happened. I was invited to speak at this rally, um, and it was under the banner of the SAFE Act, and I told the person who invited me, well, you know, I I, I don't mind if people want to talk about it, but I can't personally talk under the banner of this bill. And this person said to me, well, you know, it's not a great bill, but the activists have to have something to hang on to. And I said, well, you know, I, I, I disagree. I think the activists need to be treated like they have intelligence, which they do, and give them respect for their time and their energy, and in many cases, money that they're spending on something that has no chance of passing. So I, I got a little upset about that. And then right after that, like a week later, I read about um, the two main candidates running for president. Okay, Hillary Clinton has a decent record in Congress. She at least has a voting record on animals. But then she sort of shocked everybody by announcing that if she becomes president, she will appoint Ken Salazar, the former Interior Secretary, who had to leave office under questionable circumstances to be the head of her transition team, which I found... millions of other people found to be quite upsetting because he was involved in the Tom Davis affair. Uh, Just to remind you, Tom Davis is a rancher and a horse dealer who, under Salazar's watch, purchased nearly 1,800 wild horses at $10 apiece and sold them for slaughter in Mexico. Wow. Okay. So that was not good. But then Trump, who doesn't have a voting record, um, if if who he has selected um, for his agricultural advisory committee is any indication of how he'll treat horses, it's as bad or worse. It's like a who's who of, of horse slaughter proponents. And he's picked, I don't know if you, have you heard of Protect the Harvest? Do you know what that is? Tell us what that is. It's a PAC, a political action committee that is headed by a guy named Forrest Lucas. This is a really scary guy. He is the owner of Lucas Oil, and he runs this political action committee, which is pro-horse slaughter, pro-puppy mill, and anti-animal, as though animals are not sentient beings. And he is at the, at the top of, of Trump's shortlist to be interior secretary. So with those choices, it just drove me crazy. And, and, and I thought to myself, well, Obama and Biden have had experience with this issue, unlike any other two people in the Oval Office. Presidents that are outgoing can do things during the lame duck session that they can't or wouldn't do during their normal terms. So what if we approach them with a petition that had quite a few names, you know, we're talking about a lot of, a lot of signatures, showing the support um, to ban horse slaughter, would Obama and Biden consider banning horse slaughter as part of their legacy? And now it's it's a long shot, but it's 
it's the only chance we have. I don't see any other chance we have to get this done. And I kind of feel pretty good about it because I think that once the election is over, if we have the support that we hope that we will, that they would consider it. Susan, how many signatures are you trying to get? We'd like to get at least 100,000. And how can people access and sign the petition? Just go to our website, um, equineadvocates.org, and the first thing you'll see up on the screen is end horse slaughter petition. Click on it, and it takes you right there. And specifically, you're asking the president and the vice president to ban horse slaughter. Yes, once and for all, to ban the slaughter of United States domestic and wild equines in this country and to ban the transport of live equines across our borders into Mexico and Canada or to any other country for the purpose of slaughter. President and founder of Equine Advocates, Susan Wagner, tell us your website one more time, please. www.equineadvocates.org. Susan, thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio, and I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild, to animals on farms and in agriculture, to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to the show. The California State Assembly just unanimously passed a bill that would protect good Samaritans from legal consequences when they break into a hot vehicle to help an animal in danger. As you may know, I have a fair amount of personal experience in this area, so I'm very pleased when I see this sort of legislation because it really can save lives. I want to welcome California Assemblyman Mark Steinor from Rancho Cucamonga, who, along with Miguel Santiago, introduced this bill. Welcome to the program, Mark. Hi, Dr. Laurie. Thank you so much for having me on today. It's very kind, and thank you for drawing attention to this um, important piece of legislation. Well, thanks for working on such a worthwhile bill. 
So how did you become aware that there was a problem of pets, mostly dogs, facing danger because of the high temperatures in cars? Well, we we hear in the news, uh, you know, unfortunately, every year of, you know, tragedies with children being left inside of a hot car. And and all of us, we we all weep and and our hearts are broken for for those families because in in so many instances, it's, it's, you know, not intentional. But what we don't have reported as frequently is how many animals are left inside of a hot car. And an animal, unlike a human, has no ability to sweat. They're surrounded with a fur coat, and for a very short period of time of exposure within a hot car, their whole um, organ system can, can basically break down and, you know, collapse. So I saw a piece of legislation that was coming out of Tennessee last year that talked about um, providing the Good Samaritan protections to individuals similar that are currently in law, um, allowing people to rescue children that are um, left inside of a hot car, and applying it towards people that rescue pets. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm a big animal lover. I've grown up with animals. It's something that's very near and dear to my heart. And, you know, I think that that's something that we need to be able to enable Californians to be able to have that ability, too. I mean, we, you, as you know, we, we live in a very hot climate. And, you know, outside temperatures can be 80, 90 degrees within five to 10 minutes, 20 minutes, it can range up to 125 to 135 degrees inside of a car. And people that love their pets, they don't always know how how much damage this can really cause them. So this is called the Right to Rescue Act. What are its specific provisions? Well, thank you for asking. So it's, it's called the Right to Rescue. It's Assembly Bill 797. And for an individual to be able to receive the legal immunity, there's, there's a series of five steps that they need to follow specifically. One, they have to determine that the car is locked and there's no other reasonable method to remove the animal from the vehicle. You know, you, you got to check. You just can't think, I see an animal there and, you know, I want to I wanna smash a, a window. Two, you have to have a reasonable and good faith belief that the animal is in imminent danger if not immediately removed. Now, that's, that's very important. You have to truly believe that. Three, you must call law enforcement prior to entering the vehicle. Four, do not use any more force than is necessary to, to enter the vehicle. And then five, if you do decide to enter the vehicle, um, you must remain nearby with the animal in a safe location until law enforcement arrives. You, you may not leave the scene. Uh, there's, there's some concern that this is, you know, really is going to make people vigilantes. They're going to see an animal. They're just going to start breaking in. But, but this protections of the Right to Rescue Act will not apply to an individual, the Good Samaritan protections, unless they follow all five of those steps. Mark, I live in the Southern California desert here, and for example, today is 112 degrees outside, and I believe an animal left in a hot car today can't afford to wait for animal control or the law enforcement to come and help me rescue this dog. That's correct. And so your first step would be to check to see if the door's open. I mean, if you see an animal or a child locked inside of a hot car, you're going to first, I mean, just as instinct, look to see if the owner of the car is nearby. I mean, that's just the natural thing for us to do. And then, you know, check to see if the the door is is available to open. You have a cell phone on you. Call 911. Let them know your situation. Let them know your location. You can see that that animal is in genuine distress. I mean, we can see very quickly whether a dog is in true distress. And certainly if there's a child in there, you would just immediately jump to the last step. But then, you know, enter the vehicle. Do what is necessary to enter the vehicle. And then, as I stated, you know, 
make sure you secure the animal, and you wait in a safe area until law enforcement does show up. One thing I would like all of um, your listeners to remember is it, it, it is a crime. It's already illegal to leave your animal unattended inside a vehicle. It's been, that, it's been on the books as a crime for the last 10 years. You also stated that the other part of this effort is to spread awareness about the dangers of hawk cars to pets. How would that be done? Well, okay, thank you for that lead-in. You do such a great job. Thank you so much, Dr. Lori. Um, myself and two of my colleagues, Assemblymember Kristen Olson and Assemblymember Ling Ling Chang, we actually um, put our bodies where our mouth was, and we locked ourselves inside of a hot car for 21 minutes, and we filmed it. And if you go to YouTube and you search Hot Car Challenge and my last name, Steinorth, you'll see that come up. And you can see over the time lapse of 21 minutes how, um, how difficult it was on us. Now, of course, we're, we're grown adults, and we can open a door, and there's water nearby, and we know all of that is, is nearby, and we can go through this by choice. But as I mentioned before, an animal does not have the ability to sweat. So, you know, that 21-minute cycle where it rose from, you know, an outside temperature of nearly 90 degrees to an inside temperature of 108 degrees inside that car, you know, that, that can leave someone in, in tremendous distress and certainly it can be dangerous, um, almost deadly for an animal. So I, I would like people to understand that when you go out and you take your animal with you and you think, you know, I'm going to stop at the grocery market, I'm going to go in just real quick for something, that decision, that five or ten minute decision could be a life and death decision for your animal. I would like to just caution on a hot day, you know, to all our fellow animal lovers, you know, leave your pets at home. Leave them to home when they're safe and go out, enjoy the day, do the errands you need to run. But just please, if you have your animals with you, keep them with you. Don't leave them in your car unattended. Very good. Mark, what is the status of the bill right now? Oh, well, it's, it's been very successful. It's passed both houses with unanimous bipartisan support. It's on the governor's desk. Now, the governor, because um, session ended, uh, you know, just uh, August 31st, which was last night for me right now at um, about 2 a.m., so really it's September 1st, he has until September 30th to sign or to veto the bill. So I, I would encourage every single person that, that cares about animals to, you know, make your voices heard to the governor's office in a very polite way, of course, because the governor is, is um, very, you know, caring to animals and he has a great reputation of being an animal lover. But just to make it clear that this is something that we, we do believe is, is a, a, a benefit for, for California. And this is, this is legislation that we're not trying to create new criminals. We're not trying to do any of those. We're trying to empower our current citizens with Good Samaritan, both um, you know, legal protection from civil litigation and from criminal leg- litigation if they choose to you know, go ahead and extend themselves to protect the life of an animal. California Assemblyman Mark Steinor, thank you very much for introducing this bill and thanks for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you very much for thinking to invite me, Dr. Laurie. It's been a pleasure. And, you know, I, I really do want to applaud all of your animal advocacy as well. I think that it takes all of us working together to be able to really make um, our planet successful and to really make our state successful. Thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. <laughs>